Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Amen. Today is a, a common story as we're leading up through uh, Passion Week to the cross. Jesus' standing trial is something that is in all the gospel accounts. And yet we have this one sort of uncommon detail, and that's this character named Barabbas, somebody who sort of seems out of place. I remember my first time reading this, I, I didn't even know, notice him. But something significant is happening here. A substitution which is deeply personal, deeply individual. One man is going free while the other one will be condemned. And this ultimately is going to bring to light, at an individual level, what will happen sort of cosmically at the cross. So this idea of substitution, it's, it's really all over the place. Think about stories, movies, etc. Once you start to see it, probably won't be able to stop. Think about the hung, uh, Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen substituting herself. Uh, the most recent Marvel series uh, that just got released not too long ago on Disney Plus, Hawkeye. The, uh, um, in the previous movie, I believe it was for the Soul Stone, if I'm not mistaken, Hawkeye and Black Widow are, are fighting each other. Um, two good people are fighting each other, trying to figure out who has to sacrifice themselves so they can get the stone to save the world. Black Widow wins and sacrifices herself. And most of the series, at least from Hawkeye's point of view, is him wrestling with this reality to try to figure out how does he deal with the fact that somebody he feels like is better than him sacrificed himself and that he's the one that's alive instead of dead. He feels like he should have deserved death. So it's an incredibly common theme in stories. And I think that storytellers gravitate towards this idea because ultimately it really gets at the heart of God. It really gets at a common thread that runs through multiple stories, not just in the Bible, but almost overflowing out of us when we want to create great stories. And that is where someone stands in the gap and takes the hurt, the pain, and the suffering so that ultimately we don't have to. This is, uh, in theological terms, called substitutionary atonement. That's the fancy way to say it. The basic premise is Jesus stood in the gap to take on God's wrath, to take on his punishment so that I, so that you, so that we don't have to. Now, I want to be frank with you. There are people who actually don't like this idea at all for various reasons. And, and there are people who love the Lord. They think it's, it's, it's not biblical. They think, um, they think it's not right. And the reason they think this, it's several different reasons, but the one that I want to highlight today is... They assert that often the way it's presented is it's as if Jesus only came insofar as to appease God's wrath. It's almost like God's angry with us and Jesus stands in that gap. So now God's kind of just neutral towards us. Right? The temptation here, I think, is for us to answer this objection with sort of right theology. But I want to be careful because Jesus doesn't save us because of a right belief in the theory of atonement, but because of the atonement. Put another way, Jesus doesn't save us because we have the right theology in our brains. The cross saves us. The resurrection saves us. His life 
saves us. That is an event 2,000 years ago outside of us, not having anything to do with us or our understanding or what we say or what we proclaim. That thing back there is the reason that we are saved. I think that pushing back can show a sense of defensiveness on our part when we hear something that maybe we don't like or we don't agree with. It actually reminds me, if you'll indulge me for a second, with what it's like to be a Hawkeye fan. Uh, I'm blessed and cursed. As a Hawkeye fan, we're, we're sort of we're pretty competitive at everything, but we never quite get over that hump. And as a fan, what will happen is we'll criticize our team for this or criticize our coaches for not taking that extra shot to try to do the thing that might help get them over the hump. But for whatever reason, the journalists in Iowa really, really get defensive when you do that. And they don't like it when you do that. And so they're often very, very positive about the Hawkeyes. And they're, they're just not as critical as, as I would like. Um, then again, I'm a glasses half empty kind of guy. So maybe that speaks more about me. But as you can imagine, if a fan has a general frustration, expresses that, and then the journalist tells them how they're wrong, what kind of response is that liable to create? Another defensive response, something that's more extreme. And so then what you have is you have people shouting even louder, these fans, until they sound just absolutely crazy. And what they're saying seems so far from reality. The journalists go, see, look at these crazy Hawkeye fans, right? When in reality, what actually probably happened is at the very beginning, you didn't affirm the real and honest frustration that they had. Now, it's a silly example, but I think in the same way, Instead of attacking a criticism of this idea of atonement, I would ask, what is the 1% we can learn from it? I think that the criticism about the way that we often talk about God is warranted, the way that we sort of present God as being really hateful towards us, and then Jesus kind of steps into that gap. It's not that there isn't truth to it in some sense, it's just that it's incomplete and it doesn't actually get at the heart of God. Because if I can be straight, you know, when I became a Christian at BV and then was here in Storm Lake for a year and then went to Iowa City and then Des Moines and then back here in Storm Lake, every single church I've been a part of, even this one, this is a human problem. This is not a, a singular church problem. Every church I've been into, it sort of seems like God's angry with us now that we're Christians, right? Like, why haven't we aren't we better by now, right? Like, what's going on? Sure, his grace was extended to you and he had open, loving arms when you weren't a Christian, but now that you are, surely you should have picked it up by now. Tully and Trevijan talks about how he feels like we struggle with this idea of what he calls Christian fallenness. Like, what do we do when Christians make errors, mistakes, and really bad ones at that? I was listening to this podcast just a few days ago where an indigenous person from Canada was talking about, honestly, just the hellish experiences he went through under the hands of Christians who, whether they were on like reservations or, or the kids were sent to camps, it was just, it was brutal to listen to. And our answer as Christians is usually something like, well, those people there aren't real Christians, right? Because if they were real Christians, they wouldn't act like that. And then I think about my own heart and the motivations that I have and even the things I do. And I go, man, if they're not Christians, am, am I one? <laughs> I think we can intellectually assent to the idea in our brains that God is not angry with us. The, the challenge, though, for us is for that to, 
work its way down into our hearts, into the way that we feel, so that when we feel the guilt and the shame and the struggles is, is how do I make that knowledge that I get it, I can proclaim it, I can say it, but I just honestly don't really feel like he likes me all that much. I think the first thing we need to do is affirm that Jesus is the Father. He is God. And so I think we need to start from there because that is what the scriptures tell us. That is, whatever we see in Jesus, it's going to point us directly to how God interacts with us. Therefore, Jesus' motivation for coming was not to just appease the Father, so to speak, but he came in love. And we know this because in the Bible it says that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He did not go to it unwillingly, but willingly and out of love, out of joy. And so if that's who Jesus is and he is God, then we know that God sent his son out of love, that God sent himself out of love. That's kind of the starting point. The question is, is how can we work through this text to take that intellectual thing that we can affirm and help us recognize that it's true for us today? The first thing I want you to see from the text is that Jesus is silent. If there's something that we notice for Jesus, it's that people really struggle to argue with him, right? He's really good with words. Makes sense. He's God. He has all the knowledge in the world. He's kind of a hard guy to argue with. But he's not silent everywhere in this trial, so to speak. At the end of chapter 14, it says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? So now he's before the high priest, the religious leaders. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he makes a very clear proclamation. I am. That's back to the Exodus. That's him saying, I'm God. And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. He doesn't always stay silent, but for some reason he does here. Why? Well, because now the plan is in motion, right? He got the religious leaders riled up enough to now turn this over to somebody who could crucify him. And so the plan is now in motion for him to take on the sins of the world. So he no longer has to argue anymore because ultimately Jesus did not come to be a rhetorician, but a savior. And his silence speaks loudly that there is a deep motivation for him to be treated wrongly so that someone else can be treated rightly. And this deep motivation of love is then ultimately like we identified, it's God's motivation because Jesus is God. The second thing I want to highlight is, is who this character Barabbas is. The text tells us that he is a murderer, a rebel, an insurrectionist. Insurrectionist being he tried to overthrow the authority of the day by force. Now, there are times when reading the Bible where Jesus interacts with so many messed up people that sometimes it's almost like we become numb to how bad they are. I think it's important to try to be thoughtful about who Barabbas might be today. And as I was thinking about that, the first thing that came to mind, right, was the January 6th attack on the Capitol. It's really nervous that I just stepped in there, right? But insurrection, trying to 
Barabbas was part of a group that tried to overthrow the authority of the day. And that group was responsible for the murder of somebody. That's not terribly different than what happened at the Capitol, right? And regardless of, you know, what political side we tend to find ourselves on, if we can just take the, the really difficult part of it and we just take the, the president and his role, the, the former president and his role off of that, if we just take the, the event by itself, right? A group of people weren't happy with the election results and tried to storm the Capitol to do something about it. That's really bad, right? Particularly when you think about the, the, the very recent history of the peaceful transition of power and how wonderful that has been to live in a country that's like that. And how terrible it would be to live in a country that's not like that. And so there is a sense in which if you're like, yes, those people are evil. Yes, that's Barabbas, and that's who's going to go free. <laughs> that's the person sitting in church with us today. But if you're more on the other side, and you're like, well, maybe there was a warranted thing about it. At the same time, again, if we can just take the former president out of it, certainly we could agree on some level that trying to take the capital by force is probably not the way to handle that situation. <laughs> Either way, we're, we're stuck at the same place. We have a bad man here, and he's going to go free. And the good man is the one that will be crucified. Jesus is silent when wrongfully accused and standing next to a murderer and someone who stormed the Capitol because they didn't like the results of the election, and that person will go free instead of Jesus. In addition, Barabbas' name means son of the father or son of the teacher, some people believe that the reason he's named this is because his father might have been a Jewish leader. But even beyond that, because that's a little bit more uh, conjecture, the, t the text actually says that it is a custom at the feast or the festival. That is Passover. It was a custom to release a prisoner whom the people requested. So Passover is for who? The Jews, right? And it was a custom every year for those people to request who would get released. Well, the people who are then shouting crucify him are the same people in that crowd who are shouting Hosanna a week early. There are Jews in the crowd. And who would Jews be asking for? A Gentile? That doesn't make any sense. This was a custom that Pontius Pilate did. So it is not a stretch at all for Barabbas to be understood to be a Jew. Again, this is a person who's sitting here in the church today who has been convicted of murder and insurrection and was released on a technicality. <laughs> and he's sitting with us here today free to, free to go because of what Jesus did. Finally, there's no indication that Barabbas ever actually reforms his ways. We never hear of him again. I actually think that this is intentional that that part is left out of the story. Because I think that if he turned out for the best, he became an upstanding citizen and he was now a good man. We'd use that to our advantage. We'd justify it. Well, see, it turned out well. It was a good investment by Jesus. Look at the kind of man he is now. On the other side, if he didn't turn out well, we'd just explain it away. We'd talk about how much of a waste it was. Well, he wasn't a true believer, otherwise he really would change. Think of all the lepers that Jesus healed and none of them came back. Did Jesus not heal the people? 
Does he not extend grace to people just because they don't return on investment? Why would Jesus let this bad man go free? Because he loves him. That's his motivation. Because Jesus loves bad people. Because bad people are all that there are. The place where we sit in the text today is that you are Barabbas. That's the individual nature of what cosmically is going to happen at the cross. That's why this is here. You have been rightly convicted and should be punished for your sins. But the love of the Father is the thing that sets you free. Jesus' blood is the thing that gets us into the party, so to speak. But again, we have this incredible tendency as Christians to then go, well, it's God's blood, sweat, and tears that got me in, but it's going to be my blood, sweat, and tears that keeps me in, that helps me grow. But we don't see that scripturally. At the very least, it appears pretty likely that Barabbas was a Jew, that he had all the right information, that he was potentially raised by a family who loved God, who had the law, the Torah, and yet this is how he turns out. And Jesus still goes to the cross for that person who's a part of the family. And if we didn't have a category for Christian fallenness, for people who follow God and then fall away and do something wrong later, then we'd have to edit a lot of the Bible. Because there are a lot of bad people who then become Christians, who become followers of Yahweh, and then they do some really ugly stuff and God still loves them anyways. It is Jesus' blood that gets us in. It's Jesus' blood that keeps us in, that sustains us, that grows us. It's always been about Jesus, and it will always be about Jesus and his gospel. There is no part of the Christian life that is now lived under the banner that does not say it is finished. Your relationship with Christ is secure. It doesn't mean we don't pursue being better people, but your good works are no longer for God. They're for your neighbor. We love our neighbor. God doesn't need our good works because he has gifted us Christ's good works. So wherever it is that you're feeling like you don't measure up, the truth is you don't. But God doesn't relate to you based on your actions. And this is the most important thing. Jesus knew that God had to treat him like Barabbas so that Barabbas could be treated like Jesus. Jesus knew that God had to treat him like you, a convicted killer, so that you could be treated like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we affirm this truth that we see in your scriptures, that you indeed love us with a deep and steadfast love. Wherever, wherever it is that we are struggling to believe this, we are struggling to feel it, in our shame and our guilt, would you please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to us a better word, a word of comfort, a word of consolation, a word of grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.